Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living social history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. So often in life, you put a good street performer indoors and they blow the place apart mm-hmm. because you have such an incredible stage presence, such an incredible ability to make people watch you and to keep them interested in you because you don't have the luxury of people who've paid for a ticket. They're sitting there and the doors are closed. You yeah. know, you could lose people in any moment. So really good street performers have an incredibly powerful ability to engage an audience. Tamara Campbell's ability to engage with an audience is undoubtedly the foundation upon which she built her career. Certainly her formal training in theater gave her a slightly different perspective when it came to the development of character, but it was the skill set she acquired by doing hundreds of street shows that really shaped the performer she is today. The grittiness of the street and the stark reality that if you're not being entertaining, your audience will walk away forces a fairly specific approach. It demands a bold and fearless connection between the performer and a group of strangers that is rarely seen in any other venue. This can be intimidating for any performer, but perhaps even more so for a female artist because the busking world is populated by a predominantly male cast. So how, and more importantly why, did Tamara's Shirley Sunflower character find such success in this world? No doubt it was a combination of many factors. Tamara's determination to succeed, her ability to read an audience, and a brash cheekiness that's feisty, endearing, and at the root of so many great stories from the pitch. All right, well, we're here with Tamara Campbell, a.k.a. Shirley Sunflower. Also, Kiki... Bit of a bitch. Bit of a bitch. Your new show, and we're in Adelaide at the Adelaide Fringe Festival. So let's go back to the beginning, then. What was your first thing that you did before you even started street performing? What brought you to that? Well, I studied theatre at university, and the course that I did is quite well known. I suppose I did the theatre media degree in Bathurst, so most people know what that is, in Australia anyway. And the course was really related to, like, they did a lot of stuff about things for the community, sort of welfare state-based kind of ideas, a lot of... They used to focus on things called mumming shows, which were like old-style street shows. There was a real emphasis on large character comedy, on big outdoor events, as well as more traditional theatre. But I, I really, yeah, my interest was quite sparked by the idea of taking theatre to the people, I think. I liked this idea. And and then I was also very lucky in when my early interest in the art form to get to see some amazing people like Leandro and... Um, the Flying Dutchman, and I got to see Robert Nelson, and Kate the Great was there at that time as well. I just felt like my first exposure to the world was full of people who did pretty amazing things and a really interesting cross-section of work, and quite a sort of theatrical version of the art form as well. I didn't necessarily understand that the art form could be that theatrical, so I thought that was really great to see a lot of that stuff. Where was this that you saw these people? I saw some people in um, here in Adelaide, actually. I'll go back to sort of 94, 96, those two years. That was just really great to see so many different shows. But I think the main thing for me was the concept that I could take control of my career as an actor. I didn't have to be a waitress and wait for someone to tell me I was good. Right. I could make a show and go and do it, and that really appealed to me. And that's what I did. And then, of course, I went to California to the Delatte School and studied for another year. 
And there I was lucky enough to be taught by Joe Diefenbacher, who was at the time part of Los Piazos Mendigos, which was an extremely character-based street theatre quad, four of them. And so he helped us. There were four of us very interested in doing a street show together. It turned out to just be three of us. So my first ever real sort of street production was La Pomplemousse, which was myself and two Americans. This was um, in California? We created it in California, and we did our first tour of it in Canada. That would have been in 97. But I had done some stuff before that, but that was what I would call the first sort of professional, proper, well-working thing that I did. So before that, when you saw, like, Robert Nelson and everyone else, what were you doing? Where, like, this is what you're saying, like, is the... Oh, well, no, I met those people. Um, <coughs> the Canadian thing happened with La Pomplemousse when I was on tour with La Pomplemousse. So before that, I was here in Adelaide that I saw things, and I was doing a show called, I believe it was called Boxed, Boxed. We were called it indoor show. No, it wasn't. We did an outdoor show. It was me and two other women, and we really had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> it was quite hilarious. And people like Bike Boy and, and AJ James, and they just used to see us standing in these little um, alleyways trying to do shows. They just used to walk past and laugh at us. But I was, you know, it was a great experience because I learned, well, I learned what not to do. Yeah. Did they offer <laughs> any help? No, not really. A couple of them did. A couple of people offered some help. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was just, we didn't, I mean, we had a concept of theatre and how to make a show. We didn't really have a concept of how to make a street show, I suppose. And that was something that I learned slowly with time, obviously. But yeah, and and after California, after Delate, you know, we are so... Oh, it's just such an amazing place to go and train and you leave there just so kind of enthusiastic. It was. It seemed easy after that and then to see so many great shows in that first sort of year of being on tour was really fabulous. Well, so many legends, really. That's yeah. what it was. You get to experience these. Sort of Where were you performing shows. in Canada? With La we Pompe did um, Edmonton Street Performance Festival, um, which we were able to do on the back of Joe's recommendation to... Um, um, I can't think of his name oh, now. Dick? Dick. Dick Finkel. Dick Finkel yeah. There we go. Who's Thank Joe? You. Joe Diefenbacher, who was my clown teacher at Delate, who was, and as I said, part of Los Pastos Mendigas, yeah. and is now uh, Naka, part of Nacapelli. I see him all the time on the European circuit. He's still working. So he recommended you to Dick? Yeah, right. Re- recommended our, our new little show. But then we also did a fringe, an uh, outdoor fringe tour. So mm-hmm. we did, I think we did Winnipeg and Saskatoon. And then... Then the following year, I went back, because in La Pomplemousse, my character was Shirley Sunflower. Okay. Then the following year, I went back to Canada and did the Outdoor Fringe tour again with my solo show for the first time, which was hilarious. Before I started in Saskatoon, I was still trying to work out what the finale was going to be. And so you had a, you had booked a tour yeah, without with, finale without of the show. really having a but show. But you had the character. I had the character and I had some ideas and Brady had booked me to do a show in Rhode Island, which I went and did where I was doing some crazy thing where I was having four guys hold up a platform that I was tap dancing on. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I, that was my first experience of being totally freaked out about not really being allowed into a country to work and having this gear with me and trying to bluff my way across borders and things, which was also kind of scary. So at that point, I still had what I call the handstand split. I had been using the handstand split, and that was working, but I just didn't have this kind of finale. And then... Um, the reason I'd actually ended up back in um, North America because I had, had had a phone call from some guys I went to Delate with 
who had a, a show that was touring universities and they wanted a female clown. They were all acrobats. And so I went to Minneapolis. On a visa or did you have to bluff your way? No, I had to bluff my way in <laughs> and I was uh, and I, when I arrived in San Francisco and spent a night in San Francisco from Australia, I swore that I was being watched all night by immigration <laughs> and they were going to hunt me down and kill me. Um, <laughs> That's what we do in America. Yeah. <laughs> kill people we don't want in the country. I mean, I was really, I suppose I was still really young. I was like 23 years old or mm-hmm. something like that. So I was a bit, I suppose I didn't really know much about the world. Yeah, so I went to Minneapolis in March, which I affectionately named the land of fat people and dead things. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never seen the leftover of a harsh winter, you know, and the whole countryside just looked so dead and people were rather large yeah. um, en masse. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of a bit of a culture shock, actually. So I worked with these guys for a while. It was fun. But while I was there, this is where my career kind of this is where it happened. This was the moment that things happened. While I was there, um, Theatre de la Jolune, the sister company to Theatre de Complicité, who had been given a home in Minneapolis, so this amazing physical theatre company, were having auditions for a, a year-long internship as an artist, as a performer. And so I went to the auditions. It made me feel really good because <laughs> they really liked me. And so out of 250 people who auditioned, I was offered the job. Wow. And so they set about the business of trying to sort out my visa and be able to give me the job. And I went off to do a street theatre to a solo with Shirley Sunflower across Canada. And I finished that tour. It was just, it, that was just an amazing like three months in my life because I developed this solo show that worked and then you had a finale at this point and I had a finale <laughs> um, and for the first time in my life I had money yeah. you know I finished this tour and I was like holy crap I've got money and I was like this is good and then I thought that in September I was walking into this great job so the last gig I did was the Victoria Fringe Festival the outdoor thing that which was really great and my show was just really working by then and I got a prize for you know people's choice of the best outdoor things and it was the first time I'd ever had anything like that so it was all just like you know I was 24 years old I was young and rocking it hot and female and working in the street baby and then it's really excited about going to this job and unfortunately they yeah they rang and said that that we had been talking over the summer and then it finally just got to the point where the US government were like you know, we need to know, we need a list of why all 250 other auditionees were unsuccessful and why you chose an Australian. Oh, and ridiculous. So I was never able to take that job. Oh. So thus began the career of me as yeah. a street performer. Not necessarily intentionally, but because, well... Well, you saw what it. you could do. You saw you could make money. You yeah. You enjoying it. So. And I was enjoying it. And so I just kind of went with it. And so, you know, then after that, I... Well, with some, I don't know how much of this part I should talk about, but being a young female street performer surrounded by males was, well, it was interesting. Um, <laughs> I, you know, there were. I didn't realize how weird it was until at one point. I don't remember when it was, but at one point, I remember. I think it was Al. Al Miller, Alakazam, saying to me, yeah, I was at a festival a few weeks ago and we looked around the table and we all looked at each other and went, what do we have in common? <laughs> and I was mm. just so embarrassed. <laughs> I was like, that's so embarrassing. Um, there were only three people at the table. Oh, okay. <laughs> there wasn't like 20. It wasn't like 20 people. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so 
and the reason I bring that up is because then I met, I believe it was during that year, actually, I had for the first time met, no, it was the second time, met Michiel from the Flying Dutchman, and we obviously had a long-term relationship. So that, I guess, that sort of led to me going to Europe and working in Europe a lot more. So, and obviously, you know, Michiel was a great help with that. And as was, you know, I need to always say that Lee Hayes was actually quite instrumental in my getting work in my initial trip to Europe as well. Well, so, um, and that, and, you know, in Europe they just loved Shirley Sunflower. I don't know why, but they did. Yeah, the theatricality of it, I guess. You know, this sort of young, feisty Australian character that was really sort of ballsy. and, And I think that, although now it's really common that women do lots of stuff with men in their shows, I think that there were less women and... And they still, there still was always this thing with male volunteers. I mean, because Abby, Abby did it as well. So some of the, like, why not Sierra's been around for, for quite a while. Mm. And some of these women that maybe have come into it before you did, did you find any inspiration from them, or was it you were just on your own path? And most of them I didn't see until I was already working. Well, I didn't actually, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen a woman do a solo show before I was working. So, no, I think, I don't think I I was inspired by them in the sense of their material. I was inspired by them in the sense of the fact that they were doing it, definitely, and how it was working for them. But I think, in general, as a career, there's less, there seems to be less longevity in it for solo female artists. And I guess part of that is about your decision to have family or yeah. or for you know to meet someone and I, I don't know why um, I don't even know if it's completely true but it seems that it, a woman can't just go away on tour and leave her husband and kids at home <laughs> as easily as, as that seems to work in the other way and right. I don't know whether that's just traditional expectations or or whether it's that women don't want to do that when they have those things I mean obviously I'm very lucky because I'm partnered with one of my own kind yes. and I don't mean a woman I mean <laughs> yeah um, great Dave yeah the great Dave so and you, you have know, two kids and you're able kids. to make it work I mean you're here now yeah I'm on my own now yeah, yeah but short, at short on short trips back and forwards yeah it's nice to have the time to yourself sometimes as well but it's also really difficult to you know to be away from them you get so used to kind of being a unit I think it almost feels weird to uh to not to not be with them it's really nice for about 24 48 hours and then you start going <laughs> you start feeling a bit like you know I miss them and maybe that is the answer to you know the question that I posed before is just that you don't want to be away from them but I don't imagine that, that men necessarily want to be away from their family either so yeah. Maybe I don't. I don't really know that, but I know a lot. Certainly, a lot more men seem to go on tour for an extended period of time without their family than, than women do. But when you first started out, and you mentioned a few people that were laughing at you when you're doing <laughs> shows, who did you find most helpful in guiding you as to create that street show? And was it just from watching, or was it from people actively, like, sitting down and, Mm. you know, trying to help you figure out what that finale was going to be? I remember Jim from the gym show. He was great uh, when I was in La Pompe la Mousse. You know, I mean, this by no means 
meant to be offensive towards anyone but him and I can't remember who the other person was that said it but there were two sort of separate people who said to me on that tour you should go out on your own you should do this alone you know you'll, you'll be great I think that sort of encouragement was really important um, I felt very encouraged actually I have to be honest but then on the other hand there were also comments early in my European sort of career of like well how did you get here so fast you didn't do your time Mm -hmm. how did you end up here and it's like well I did do my time I did it differently I went to university then I went to school in California and you know I didn't get there by working working the street pitch I I got there in a different way but it was also never my intention to work the street pitch the show wasn't necessarily created for that although it worked in that situation but not always well <laughs> but um, it wasn't my intention I definitely came at it from a theatrical point of view and from the point of view of, of wanting to be a performer uh, and an entertainer if anything I'd say that it certainly wasn't a lifestyle choice for me it's one of the things that I find most difficult about the job is the travel and having to be away and, or having to take everyone away with us and yeah but anyway I'm going to just focus on the question <laughs> I felt very supported, definitely. And, of course, Mejio was a great support to me, a great source of help, particularly with connecting me to the world. And then was always encouraging. He, I remember, <laughs> and I don't know if I should say this either, but I remember him um, saying at one point that when we first got together, it was like I was, um, you know, the girlfriend of one of the Flying Dutchmen, and by the time we split up, he was Mr. Sunflower. <laughs> because, of course, their time was sort of rounding out a little bit, and they yeah. were getting ready to take a break. And I suppose my career went through probably its peak period near the end of our relationship. Uh, yeah, it was quite funny. But, um, yeah, as I said, Lee Hayes was also really, really great, just really helpful, very generous. I think Lee's very generous in that sense. All the boys who worked the pitch in Amsterdam, you know, because I was living there. And you were working, was it Lights of Plane you were working? Sometimes, not not often, but I did sometimes in the Vondelpark as well. Yeah, they were really sweet. Um, As I said, Jim, Jim was really sweet in those sort of early days. Yeah. Who, Who was working in Amsterdam at that time? Frank. Frank Van Dyke, mm-hmm. um, Marty, <laughs> Marty slightly, slightly batty Marty, lovely He's Marty. American, isn't he? Yeah, he is American. Yeah, uh, the Von Weiss brothers, you know. Um, actually, at that point, Bert, who was German, and Frank and Paul, and I can't remember. Oh, and it was Adam, the little Australian guy. They had a show with the four of them. Actually, the four of them did this kind of meshed together sort of thing I think they were all working their pitch solo and they decided that they'd um, yeah bang it out together together. yeah I mean that was the other thing at that point Lee was booking the Rotterdam Street Theatre Festival which was quite a big thing at that time and so I uh, I did that then as well and won the first place award you um, get a brick or something I got nice? a golden a golden brick yeah. <laughs> a golden, <laughs> golden cobblestone that's exactly what you want as a street performer to carry <laughs> yeah. around a brick carry around a golden cobblestone yeah and I think that year um, Shane the space cowboy won the people's choice award there as well and um, in general I thought people were really nice very supportive it sounded like you were surrounded by a lot of people that were helpful and Mm, yeah, I think it was quite nice. And you probably seeing all the shows has to influence you in some way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, for me, I was very particular about not wanting 
particularly with the lines like that was one thing that struck me very early on was that there's sort of these lines that yeah. everyone sort of used and and um, I really wanted to try to avoid that I remember one of the biggest compliments that I still you know because sometimes you feel like it's so easy to hang on to the negative things that you hear but there's a few positive things I always try and keep uh, in my head when I have a bad day and I remember um, being told uh, by um Mez, it was actually by Mez, that she'd never seen a show where people actually, the way the audience had such big reactions without being asked to have them. And I always took that as a really nice compliment because I think that was something that I wanted to achieve. I really appreciated all the good shows that I saw, but for me, I think seeing shows a lot, what it really made me feel was that I wanted to try and find a way to have my individuality. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit about this last night after you had done your new show for the seventh time mm-hmm. only. And your new show is really just, it's playful and character mm. in a different way. And you did, you worked it on a weird pitch. <laughs> That's kind of a new pitch, but it worked. It worked. Yeah. People yeah, enjoyed right. it. Yeah. And you did take a lot of chances. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that comes from your experience of having worked the street so much that you can mm. go out there. And you also said that you were more relaxed. Yeah, I felt pretty relaxed because I'd done sort of a show earlier in the evening somewhere else. So the nervous part of doing something new had kind of settled down a little bit. And that that is the thing that I think is always important for me to remember is always just to relax and take my time and settle in and trust in my own stage presence, trust in my own ability for people to enjoy me. Well, I mean, you did you have a bit in the new show, and we can talk about why you created the new show and everything, but you have a few things that are like tricks or stunts. Hmm to kind of introduce the character a bit. But then, in the end, it's really just about being playful. Yeah. Like, I was saying, eventually you could probably lose that stuff Mm. because it is just about knowing who this character is and people are loving it because of who you are, not necessarily the tricks you're doing in the show. No, exactly. And I guess that's... I mean, that has been my style. I don't know whether that's out of necessity because I... (laughs) I can't really do much physical yeah. skill. Yeah. <laughs> or I, no, I, 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 I can appreciate that. <laughs> I think it's better for me to say that I never had that much... I never had the patience to persist yeah. with learning a physical skill. I was Practicing always... sucks. It really does. And I was it's always hard. so much more attracted to, to being funny. It was always something that, you know, for me it felt like that was the skill I would rather work on. Yeah. When I was at Delate, my clown teacher, Joey, said to me, I've actually never seen anyone have such a great intuition for the audience and for for people. And I guess that, that when that's your strength, I suppose that's really, in many senses, I guess I've made my career out of that mm-hmm. strength. And I think if you don't play to your strengths, then, you know, you're yeah. probably stupid. Yeah. And <laughs> don't, like don't force yourself to do things that aren't within your yeah. your wheelhouse. I mean, you're, I mean, it's great to push yourself, but it's also important to know where your true ability Lies and your limitations. And your limitations. So, why did you decide to create this new show? Were you tired of Shirley? Do you have enough years? Yeah, I've been tired of Shirley for quite some time. Um, Even though you were doing other stuff, you've done plenty of other things. I have done a lot of other things. She sort of just remained my staple. I suppose she also remained the thing that people really knew me for. Mm -hmm. After I had my second child, I really felt I wanted to just, I just wanted to move on. So. David and I created a show together, which didn't go so well in the beginning. Is this the magic show? Yeah. 
But, uh, yeah, so we struggled quite a lot to refind it. In the end, I ended up saying today, we need to just throw it out. Let's just throw it out and start again because it just didn't feel like us. Basically, we didn't necessarily make the right choice in choosing a director. So once we threw it out and started again, we decided actually not to even work with a director. And the only reason I suppose we decided to do it was... Oh, because we're husband and wife and trying to make a show together and we sort of felt that maybe it would be nice to, to not have to, you know, tussle through that. But actually, it's fine. I just, I'm just really bossy. <laughs> and Dave just accepts that, except for when he really feels like he doesn't want to, in mm-hmm. which case it's like, you know, when he really goes after something, then it is something that he obviously really cares about. So then we have to tussle it out a little bit. But we do basically run our rehearsals... Um, following on the philosophy that Tamara is mostly right. I've <laughs> <laughs> heard that before. Someone's a woman is mostly right. Uh, well, at least I'm saying mostly. I'm yeah. not saying always. Yeah, I, okay. You know, Fair I, enough. I, I, you know, I, I'm willing to give credit where credit is due. Right. So, yeah, we really struggled. Uh, now, now we actually we have a really nice little product. I like it a lot. We went back to, again, we, we didn't try to... I felt that we really were trying to play outside of our own comfort zone yeah. so much so that we were... It wasn't working. We, yeah, we were losing focus on, on what we really needed to do. And was this this character came out of that show? Yeah, so so Kiki Bit of a Bitch is the character um, that I use in the duo show. I love her because she's just so sort of dry and droll. And, and in the duo show, it's great because I can really go a long way because Dave's always there to sort of rein me in. It's weird to say this, but in the solo show, I almost feel like she's slightly different, a little bit different. But that's obviously about I don't have the relationship with Pascal in the solo show that I have in the duo show. So so obviously that alters her a little bit. But I just really liked the character. And I was actually asked where we live, near where we live in Wollongong, and they have a, a vault cabaret. It happens three or four times a year. And then and we did that cabaret with Kiki and Pascal. And then they have treasures from the vault. Pascal being Dave's character. Dave's character, yeah. Then they have treasures from the vault um, once a year. And that's held at Merigon Theatre, the big theatre in Wollongong. And the director of that rang me and asked if I would MC treasures from the vault on my own. And I was like, oh, with Kiki. And she's like, well, you can do it with Kiki or with Shirley. I don't mind, whatever you want. And I was like, oh, do it with Kiki. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of gave it a whirl. And I just love, I loved it. And so that was in November. So I just went, right, I'm going to make a show. And then Dave and I run our own festival now in Kayama, the Kiss Arts Festival, Kayama International Seaside Arts Festival. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm not going to disappoint anyone but me if I actually sort of try to preview the show there. So that's what I did. That was just recently, though. Yeah, that was in January. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very, it's very new. I actually worked with JP on it. So I just, you know, went ahead and made up everything I wanted to do and then sat with JP, who is very structurally brilliant. We all know his, yes, um, JP, his obsession with structure. Yeah. And, um, and he can talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat with him for a day and, and we just went through it, you know, make sure that he felt things made sense and ran well. And, and then I just threw myself out there and, and, and did it. So... It's interesting, though, because I had a similar experience with my new character, but how you said that you were asked to host, and you thought, oh, why don't I try that? Mm. And then you do it, and you go, oh, I do like this, Yeah, playing with this character, where you didn't plan it. No. Initially. Like, it's it's like you're kind of put into a situation 
where you're given this opportunity and then something clicks and you go, whoa, wait, this yeah. is actually, this There's could something work. something here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That is, yeah, and then it's surprising exactly. and it's fun to explore that. Yeah. You know, I was staying for years. I was really over Shirley and um, then last year I made the decision to kill her. <laughs> How did you do that? No, I... On stage? <laughs> I, I worked at... Um, That'd be awesome. Did you imagine that? That'd be great to do, to like, Shirley. just decide to do one last show where you yeah. just die and you don't collect a hat or anything. You just lay there. That's it. You're just dead. And then you bring up, like, the ambulance has to come, like, take you away, and, and that's the end Talk of your show. Like, the that's dead. it. Yeah. God, that's a good idea. Well, I did do... I did have a planned last show, so... I mean, to clarify, she's not dead, but I have killed her as a street show, like, as that 45-minute version of her as a street show. Technically, is dead. I'm not actively selling it. I'm not... What if um, you were asked to do it somewhere? Well, Would this you say, has already on. come up. Oh, okay. um, as I book Europe, the Europe summer for um, this year, I've already been asked to do two gigs with her. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to do it, obviously. But <sighs> I think... What I have noticed as well is, you know, since she died, it's a little bit more fun to be her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because she's, she's not, um, you know, she's not the be-all and end-all, and Kiki has sort of made her rise into the world, and my allegiance at the moment is definitely with Kiki. Yeah. But, you know, Shirley it was a huge part of my life, and it's always fun to see an old friend, right? So. Yeah, do you think that now the more you're doing Kiki, when you go back and do Shirley, are you finding... That there's another layer to the character because you've been doing this other character and you're finding other things as Shirley that maybe you didn't discover before. I think it definitely changes her, but but I also think about Shirley as the 25 year old Tamara, you know, yeah. as a Tamara whose eyes were still so wide and the world was so big and bright. And Kiki is definitely the over 40 year old Tamara. Like she's older than I even am yet. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. a bit more kind of droll and, and just says it how it is and doesn't sort of give so much but she's not Kiki's not trying to impress anyone right. <laughs> that's how I feel whereas Shirley was just so like sort of bright eyed and I think that was part of what made her less enjoyable to play with time was that the truth for me had gone out of her yeah. because I wasn't like that so much so I wonder what it'll feel like then when you go and do these gigs in the summer because mm. at that point you'll have a lot more of the Kiki shows under your belt yeah. and when you go back and do Shirley what it'll feel like to revisit that character and that show after having been this other person. Yeah. Well, I had to do it a few times in January for some things with Circus Monoxide. Um, I did some Shirley stuff. And, um, and and then there is also something so beautiful about revisiting that innocence, about going back to a place where it's okay to be a little bit childlike almost. And to be honest, I never would have thought of her like that. It's only when I look from the outside back into her that I think of her like that because she's actually quite feisty and kind of naughty yeah but there's just an innocence about her I don't know it feels to me like there is maybe it's just because maybe it's just me going when she was created I was young and innocent sure yeah <laughs> you know, but some of that has to come into play in the character anyway <laughs> yeah of course well I mean it's, it's, what, it's what's going on in your head exactly is what you're going to project to the audience exactly so and I mean it's only character in this I mean you know this is a whole another discussion but it's the whole thing about the difference between character and clown I mean ultimately yes I create characters but essentially they're clowns they're, yeah. they're extensions of me or versions of me parts of me and probably you know if you wanted to you could find similarities 
between them as well. I don't know. It's actually one of the hardest things for me in developing Kiki, working with that, and it was Fraser Hooper finally broke it for me, was that I couldn't get rid of Shirley's voice. Because it was like I was so used to every time I was performing that that was the voice that came out of my uh-huh. mouth. You know, that was the sound. And Fraser went, for God's sake, you know, <laughs> just do an accent. I don't freaking care what accent it is. It doesn't even have to be an accent. Just, yeah. you know, really like change that. And that, of course, worked. I sort of feel like accents are a big thing at the moment. and Everyone's got an accent. But for me, it wasn't a choice. It was a definite tool. Yeah. Um, but what it also did was allow me to make up a whole country and a whole background for this character that probably wouldn't have been there if I hadn't. Well, as you find so much, it's like putting on a hat that suits the character. Like, if without that hat, you're not going to be that character. And so the voice does really inform a lot. I feel that a lot. Like, I do the English accent for the characters. It just made sense. Like, Mm. I was listening to heavy metal music, trying to figure out what I was supposed to do. Host this show that my friend asked me to host as a heavy metal magician. I was like, oh fuck, I have to come up with material. This is annoying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I just listened. I had that song Paranoid, you yeah, know, Black Sabbath. And I was like, I think you should be English. And probably somewhere in my head, I was thinking Spinal Tap. Yeah, it must have been yeah. rolling around in there as well. Yeah. I don't know. But then it just made more sense for me to do that character with an English accent and then allow him to do the things he can do. And it's also truth. There's truth in that. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, to me, that's the heart of comedy is truth. Yeah. And the truth in that is the whole rock legend thing really is very English, yeah. you know? Yeah, he wouldn't sound like he's from the South. No. It's <laughs> no. stupid. <laughs> like, he's got to be this, like, kind of English whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, getting back to street, when you first started to do a show, mm. you didn't have a reference, right? To go, hmm, I could do this, a show where I'm going to do some big trick, mm. or I could be this character. You just had your character, you're gonna, your background in Del Arte and everything mm. informed you, and then you created this character. And so you never had, you never had looked at it and said, oh, I'm going to choose to do the show that's going to be the thing's going to make me all this money. No. Definitely not. I mean, the whole money thing for me was a huge bonus. Yeah, you go, oh my <laughs> I had, God, I can make money on the street. I had no idea that was possible because if you go back to the boxed days, as I was talking about with those three girls doing the thing in the alleyway, yeah. Jesus, we barely finish up with enough money to buy lunch. Yeah. But yeah, obviously it became clear that when you do your job well, you of course are capable of making money. But I think there are a lot of issues or a lot of discussion points or a lot of ways of looking at those differences. I think, for starters, a distinction that's really not made very often is the fact that street theatre is not just one thing. Mm -hmm. Street theatre is your local busking pitch. Street theatre is, you know, your very Australian and Canadian style. You get a retainer and you go out and do shows for the hat, but those shows are really good and people are happy to pay good money for them. And then there's, of course, your fully contracted work that that, that you just get paid in Europe. You're not actually on the street at all. You're on a stage and, you know, everything's completely organised and it's like being in a big outdoor theatre. So, bearing in mind those sort of different avenues of work, I think that there needs to be different kinds of shows. Lots of people, not lots, some people are able to cross amongst all three. Mm -hmm. Some people are very much stuck in either one or three and can't, you know, wouldn't be able to change. And so... For me, I don't think that I necessarily planned to be in any one of them. I don't think I understood the industry well enough at that point in my life. 
as I said, really for me it was very much about wanting to perform this driving passion just to entertain. And also I'm a pretty hardcore socialist. Like I really believe in the quality of access to things for people. You know, I believe in free education. I believe in free medical. I believe that everyone should be able to afford to see theatre. And so, you know, from a philosophical point of view, I completely agreed with the street, obviously. And there's value to every form of street as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do sometimes feel that the hardcore lack of... I'm going to call it a lack of sensitivity that comes sometimes from local busking pitch mentality... Sometimes I feel like it can give the industry a little bit of a bad name. I know it can be really tough out there, but I also sometimes feel like, particularly in this country, when people think about street theatre, they think about someone busking on the corner, um, or they think about some dirty hippie juggling a chainsaw or or a knife. But do they think about it in the sense that they're just begging for money or do they think about because there's a difference between I think between, both I think yeah, both because there is something when you say like well yeah like the dirty hippie but then you say the juggling the chainsaw yeah you, you, I don't know you see a dirty hippie juggling the chainsaw <laughs> but you probably see a dirty hippie with his guitar and his yeah. dog yeah I mean there definitely becomes a distinction between busking and street theatre and I've for me, the distinction, and this is interesting because in North America you don't make this distinction, but for me the distinction busking to me is music or yeah. you know or, or not not in get not engaging with an audience to create something that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Yeah. For me, anything that has a beginning, a middle and an end is street theatre. Yeah, it's agree. a show on the street. It's yeah. a piece of theatre that's being done outside. Yeah. What I suppose I'm sort of talking about is... Well, we're talking about the perception here, which yeah. I don't know, totally understand. Like, I know in the States, no one has any idea what it is at all. Yeah. Like, I think if you say street performer in the States, they're just thinking somebody who's playing guitar in the subway. Yeah, right. And busker, they have no idea what that is. Yeah, right. So here, explain what you see as the difference, what the people in Australia mm-hmm. see. See, I think that we are becoming to understand here how great how interesting and how diverse street theatre can actually be. And that's thank you to like things like the Frio Street Arts Festival, <clears throat> you know, the Adelaide Busking Festival, things that where the programming is quite diverse and they're getting exposed to lots of different things. And that was something we really wanted to do with the Kiss Arts Festival as well. I mean, we had Dado there this year on purpose to have a silent show to, so people would not think that shows were always big hype because they're not and I don't want that audience that we're cultivating there to be under any illusion ever that that's all that it is and I think that in Australia it was so predominantly that for a long time I believe here the history is that in 88 for the Expo 88 the performers you know a lot of English performers came out here and we developed what became the Australian style which was the one trick show you know whole heap of sort of talking and leading up to this eventual one trick which was apparently very much an English style hmm. I don't know so I know I've Master heard. Lee was here as well and he had his finale but he said but first mm, mm, but mm. first so it, it was exactly. drawn out to yeah yeah. so setting up what's going to happen in the end yeah. and then just doing a whole bunch of things beforehand yeah, I think yeah. that was very much a style that developed here through the 90s and, and here I think the style was always roguish cheeky kind of borderline a little bit aggressive you know how much can you get away with uh, 
so I think it's taken time here for the more theatrical side of it to come along and and of course with that then the appreciation of actually how developed and how complicated and talented the industry actually is you know that's kind of the bottom line I suppose it doesn't necessarily matter in which way you do it or in which one of those three sections of street theatre you might be able to succeed or whether you can succeed in all of them I mean good luck to you if you can you know it just makes your life a bit easier it's also an arts industry and it is suffering at the moment as an industry yeah. I feel like there's less work yeah you know. less work and more performers yeah I mean that's the issue for me is where are all these performers coming from I think they're coming from the circus school here I, in Melbourne <laughs> I think they are as well but what's interesting is that they come out with so little understanding of actually performing, yet they have these incredible skills. Yeah. But it's interesting to me watching some of them learn the rules of engagement, as to put it, you know, actually learn the art of being an entertainer. Now, I also think that you can... An interesting thing about the street, I suppose, and it's probably the same in any art form, is that you can actually just follow a formula and probably succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can use standard lines and you can make sure your formula fits and you'll actually be okay, particularly if you have high skill, particularly in this country, because it's very appreciated. We're a sporting nation. Yeah. You know, we like to see people do things we can't do. But that's one way to entertain. The other way is to actually be entertaining. <laughs> yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And I don't yeah. think either are better or, or worse. They're just different. And you know what? Variety is important. And not everyone in the world is going to have the same taste either. So, you know, it's Absolutely. important that we offer them a cross-section of stuff. And I don't feel that one is better than the other. They are just different. And, and you know, I could probably be elitist about it and go, well, it is an entertainment industry and we should be about the entertainment but, you know, but, but some people like Home and Away, and some people don't. Yeah. <laughs> some people think Home and Away is entertaining. So, you know, that's the thing. But also some people think that, whatever, the guy on the tall thing with the sharp, fiery, yeah. whatever bits is entertaining. Mm. So, And sometimes he actually and it, and it is. is. Yeah, 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 true. <laughs> or know, she. Or she, or yeah. she actually is. Yeah. Uh, oh, you know who I have didn't mention in the women's thing oh my god she'd kill me Aileen Wilkie let's talk about a woman who's been around forever and a woman who actually like really existed Aileen in a, in a, in a man's well Garden. Covent Garden she's Covent Garden and, and kilt in a kilt yeah and, and she did unicycle yeah and she worked hard pitches she just she worked, worked hard yeah. pitches yeah. yeah she had a beautiful way of it's not a word but of feminizing her show you know of like actually really making it female which is the other thing that I, I think is really important for women in this industry is don't try to be like the boys. You're not a boy. You know, you're a woman. Mm-hmm. And so do it your way. And I think you should never be afraid of pushing the envelope. You know, yes, there's a formula. Yes, there's a certain way that the street works and the outdoor sort of festival world works. But there's always, always room to jump off the edge of the precipice and mm-hmm. reinvent something or make something your own or... You know, they always say that there's only so many ideas in the world, and I think that's true, you know, and that with comedy you will reach the same conclusions. I mean, that's one of the things that I would say to street performers in general is lay off each other a little bit with that stuff. Like, you know, comedy is actually quite logical, you know. It's logical and it's true. So if you feel the same thing that I do, we might end up thinking the same joke Mm -hmm. about something. And then as for the tricks, I mean, Jesus Christ, there's only so many tricks in the world and people are going to do the same tricks. That's one thing, like, 
it's a difficult enough industry, so we should at least kind of back each other as yeah. much as we can. Sure. So I'm going to ask you this question then, based on what you're just saying, but also because I was thinking about this, and maybe you're not the best person to ask this question to. I should ask other female performers who are newer. Yeah. But do you think that your show and your career has had an influence on other female acts? Um. I mean, from things that I hear from other women, yeah, I think it did. For real, I don't know. I have no yeah. idea. That's what I'm saying. I would have to ask, like, yeah. people who Possibly are people. five or six years into it or yeah. ten years into it and say, hey, yeah. you, when you saw it, did you see Tamara? And did that, yeah. you know? I think I definitely had a reputation. I mean, I often heard... It's like you said. You said to me yesterday, you know, you look pretty good for a mother of two. And I was like, oh, I don't think I said it like that. Well, I don't know <laughs> no. what you said. Yeah. Like that. And I was like, well, what kind of a compliment is that? You know. So if I hadn't have had two children, I'd just look like some kind of fat shit. You know? <laughs> like, but it's that kind. Of, that was the kind of, you know, that was one of the comments that often came up in my career was, you know, oh, Tamara's the best female street performer that I've ever seen, or you know, sure. or Tamara's known as the best female street performer. And I was like, why does that word need to be put in there? Right. Female, sure. and it's just a classification. It's just yeah. like, and I, I think best is, you know, it's a ridiculous way to speak about things. Anyway, I mean, to be honest with you, I think there are a lot of great great performers both male and female and I think we all influence each other in lots of different ways I think that I hit on something at an appropriate time in both my own career and in the grand scheme of what was happening with street theatre and managed to have a pretty successful well an extremely successful sort of five or six year period and then that Shelley Sunflower show worked for 16 years that's a long time I guess yeah well it could still work you just killed her still works I just killed yeah, her yeah it. it's, not, it's not like <laughs> it's not, not like it's work still anymore. working yeah. no. but I do feel like street theatre has moved on from that style of show from the style of show that Shirley Sunflower was I mean it's very bare bones when I started we didn't have microphones and we certainly didn't play music I altered that show a few years ago to add a little bit of music to it because I felt like it was so damn archaic without it I started to get this feeling about five years ago that my show was really old school, which was really interesting. Yeah. Stuff's moved on. The style of now is a little bit different. And you were talking about that last night, saying you felt that it was all a bit old hack with the street show and stuff. And part of that yeah. is, I think, about things moving on. The new yeah. stuff that's created is slightly different, and so the style changes. Yeah, I think that overall, but then there's still shows that are, you know, the ones that have been going Forever, for yeah, it's in, yeah, 20 years that it still work. Yeah, but yeah, street theater evolves, and so styles start to change within that. Kind of like you're saying that there's all these different venues for street theater, so all just kind of street shows. So yeah. even though the overall art form is changing a bit, there's always still going to be the shows that are the same that could be considered like kind of old school, yeah, yeah, exactly. style of show, which may might even be more of a. Like the, those busking shows, like the local busking pitch yeah. shows, yeah. are the ones that because they're consistent and they, they, are they consistent. work. Yeah, they they are consistent. And you know, I have this conversation. It's interesting. I have this conversation with JP a lot where he talks about, um, you know, his frustration with finding it difficult to be able to get booked and things. He's like, oh, it's because I don't have a costume. It's because I don't know this. Because I don't have that. Just wear a clean T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing about JP actually is that he is actually. A very good entertainer. Yeah. So, I mean, there's an example for me of, of someone who actually is a very good entertainer. And when you actually look at the skill level in the show, it's actually really low. Like, the trick skill level is actually really low. Mm -hmm. It's all for him about his connection with those people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And his entertainment. 
I mean, a lot of the lines and stuff are a little bit more on the standard side, but he's got such a catalogue of stuff he can use, and he makes it all appear very improvised. And so I think it's really interesting that although a lot of people would say, you know, that's a very standard show, and I know that he often suffers from the fact of people going, well, I won't hire it because it's too streety, I actually think that he's an extremely good entertainer he has a fantastic stage presence and a really great connection to his audience and so it would be interesting experiment i think with him to see if you could get him to do a show that maybe allowed him to step outside of that well, then he had, he had a catapult for a while yeah he did that he talked about good. but yeah it was good he's the whole koala thing and he moved along from there but you know but the thing is as with this industry in any form of the arts industry at some level, you have to be prepared to play the game. Yeah. I mean, I don't like to play the game, so consequently, I probably don't have the career I maybe could have had because I'm just not so good at that. Other people would say, oh, you know, that's bullshit, Tamara. You're actually really good at it. You know how to book. You know how to do this. You know everyone. But I got to where I got to because I had a show that people wanted, not because I was good at booking or good at selling or good at marketing. Or you came up with something marketing. that was different that... Yeah. Well, as I Maybe said, it was lucky there. time and place. Sure. I, I mean, I got a little bit lucky, I, I believe, in that. I don't yeah. think that I was any more talented than a lot of other people are. I do think that my reasons for being in the industry are true and real. Like, you know, they're about entertainment. And that's one other interesting thing about this industry is I don't think that's why everybody's here. Some people, it's more of a lifestyle choice. Some sure. people, it's necessity. I don't know. And again... Well, does it really matter? <laughs> does it matter why you're here? No, 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 I don't. I don't think it does in the end. Yeah. But I do think that we do provide a really important service to the art world, though, because you know we are a little bit the television of theatre. You know, <laughs> we're the popular. You know, it's a popular art form. Yeah, and to be enjoyed by everyone. To be enjoyed by everyone. We're trying to hit a center point with taste, as well as with money. And yeah, and sometimes it's harder than others. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not going to appeal to everybody. Every yeah. show's not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. But, you know, if I could go back to that time when it was like, if yeah, it worked out with Jean Loon, I often think about that. You go, What would you be doing? What, where would I yeah. have been if that had have happened? And you know what? I have to say, I don't regret having had this life at all. Not at all. I've traveled the world. I met an amazing man. I've got two beautiful children, and I've had a pretty satisfying career that. Let's hope is a long way from over. Oh yeah, for sure. So especially with the new show, especially it's a whole, it's a whole new beginning. <laughs> it is. Forget it. It's I mean, exciting. Yeah, you've only done seven so far. We till get to a hundred. Yeah, I know. <laughs> rock and roll. Yeah, it'll be a totally well, different show. You know, that's the thing. It's a little because you know, as I said with Kiki and Pascal, it was really like we really struggled. When I first did Shirley, I mean, she just worked off the bat, bang. Yeah. I knew I was onto something, and I guess the same sort of thing has happened here with Kiki and it's very comforting it's very nice after seven shows to be able to go this is going to be great yeah but it also comes from the fact that you've performed for over 20 years like you can't just come out with this thing and go "Ah, I just came out with this great idea it's working right away I just you know got out of school don't burst my bubble no I'm I'm being complimentary it is like the reason that you can come out and take these chances because you have all this experience you're able to come out with this brand new show yeah and, it, and it's working straight away because mm-hmm. you have all this history of you yeah. know what you're doing. Yeah. 
And and like the show I watched last night, and you you know before the show you were saying, oh, I'm nervous, I'm worried. Yeah. And you said, I just have to take my time. Just have to remember to take my time. And you did, and you you <laughs> that was hilarious. I said this last night. You went out and you set up a camera and said, this is a new show. Can I get someone to record the show? <laughs> and we got this woman that was fully like behind the camera, following everything, recording the whole show for you. I mean, that's just honesty. You just came yeah. out in character. It's gone. It's a new show. I you know. But you had this beautiful crowd that was with mm. you the entire time. Mm. And just being relaxed and being able to do that is it's yeah. just like this freedom. Yeah. And it was yeah, that was really funny. You know, I have been a sufferer of um you know, from anxiety, from panic attacks from the time I was like twenty. And I always say that the only place I have never even felt close to having an anxiety attack where I know I'm never gonna have an anxiety attack is on stage. It's crazy, right? Yeah. You go, how do you stand in front of five, six hundred people and feel so insanely comfortable? I am so much worse at having small talk with a person I've just met than I am being open and honest to 400 people, 400 yeah. strangers. I find that a really interesting phenomenon. And not that I'm going to compare myself to her, but I was listening to an interview with Nicole Kidman the other day on the internet when I was doing some research for this Jessica Bianco character. Oh, right. Was, so what you're doing here as well, you're doing this uh, festival TV. Festival with TV Stompy, with Stompy. And you're doing this kind I'm of... doing this sort of very, very different thing to what I would normally do. You know, I'm renowned for making myself quite unattractive and being kind of I don't know. Goofy. <laughs> no, or, goofy, yeah. goofy, nerdy. Yeah. And with Jessica Bianco, I feel like Jessica Rabbit, you know, all curvaceous in this long pencil skirt with a little pinned in waist. And I've got those chicken fillet things in my bra. So I've actually got boobs, you know, which I kind of like. I just look down at them and I kind of laugh. <laughs> I've never had boobs in my whole life. Well, obviously, except when I was feeding my children. But, um, <laughs> Let's get real. Yeah. Uh, Boobs. <laughs> Boobs. Yeah. So I was doing some research about Jessica Bianco because I wanted to um, practice the Australian accent because I've got this kind of problem that um, I so hated the way that Australian women, when they were doing shows, sounded like everything was a question. <laughs> and I really trained my voice not to do that because it really <laughs> irritated me. I felt like you couldn't have any sense of control when you were constantly having this inflection yeah. that made you sound Turned so up, yeah. weak. And so they really wanted me to have this Australian accent, like real Australian accent. I mean, I know I have an Australian accent, obviously, but I've also lived in London and Amsterdam and, and I'm married to an Englishman, so my yeah, accent's a little bit hybrid. Yeah, yeah, um, I don't have a harsh Australian accent. No. Anyway, so they wanted this Australian accent out of me and I just couldn't do it. Could not do it. And then I realised it was because that sound... That thing that is the Australian female voice, I literally beat it out of myself. <laughs> and so the whole idea of trying to bring it back was like a panic attack. You know, yeah. it, was, ah. it was really. So I was trying to listen to um, Nicole Kidman because she still has an Australian accent. So I was listening to this interview with her, and she's so sort of quite shy and very real. And, you know, and I've never been a huge fan. I always liked it, but no, a huge fan. But there was something so beautifully engaging and vulnerable about her. But for all her sort of vulnerability and her softness, she talks so, sort of with such authority and so strongly and with great confidence about how this was what she was meant to do and that she was born to be an actress. And on the days when I hate this job so much and it frustrates me and it brings me to tears, the one thing that I have to remind myself of is, you know, that 
that this is where I'm meant to be, that being an entertainer is what I'm supposed to do. And I just the other night when I was really feeling frustrated about stuff and I had a conversation with Dad and I said, maybe I should just quit and sell real estate. <laughs> and he was like, you can't quit, not you. You can't. You mm. belong here. And it is. It's, it is. I believe in the industry I, I, and I feel very at home. And it's such an eclectic world of total weirdos and fuck-ups, you know? <laughs> yeah. But also beautiful. beautiful, amazing people. And it's a great place to be. And you know what? Whether people feel like they're meant to be there or they're just along for a ride or whether it's a, a stepping stone to something else or whatever it is, I think everybody's welcome. And there's something really nice about that. I think that's a beautiful way to end the interview. <laughs> that was really powerful what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I love that. That was great. Thank you, Tamara. Thank you. Yeah. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. Downloading this podcast doesn't cost a dime, but keeping it afloat does. If you enjoy the content, help us cover the hard costs of maintaining and delivering it to you by heading over to the Busker Hall of Fame website and clicking on the donate button. Your donation will be recognized on our donors page, you'll get a shout-out in one of our regular e-blasts, and you'll join an elite group of the coolest people on the planet. Music for today's podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take you just a minute or two, and it will mean the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor for an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter at buskerstories, or sign up for our newsletter on the Busker Hall of Fame website. Think you need to unleash a plethora of physical skills just to have a successful street show? If so, you may be missing out on a guiding principle that has driven Tamara Campbell's career for decades. All that the skills are, well, all that they should be, is in a sense a conduit for your personality, for a conduit of who you are on stage. Well, that's my philosophy. I mean, obviously, yeah. that's probably not true for everyone. But for me, it's just about a way for that character to have fun. Yeah. You know, create scenarios that are designed for that character to have fun, which hopefully is entertaining for the audience because let's face it that is the point yeah in the end it is in the, the end that yeah. is the point on behalf of myself co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh Magic Brian who both captured this interview and created the preliminary edit and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame we hope this finds you well and as you perform for audiences around the world please remember to use your superpowers for good I'm David Aiken the checkerboard guy thanks for listening Amongst the men, you don't ever hear someone going, oh, he's the best male street Well, it's only by the person that thinks they're the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bit more contentious with men, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>